Welcome to this edition of the Mile 27 podcast. With me today, I have Ben Duffus. How are you, Ben? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Very well, thank you, Ben. And Simon, you good today? Very good, sir. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Excellent, excellent. So today we are going to talk about how to run the back half of an ultra strongly. Another way, another title would be how to improve your fatigue resistance. But we're going to dive deep into what that actually means and how we can train it. So before we go into the training sessions that will help your fatigue resistance and help you to run that back half strongly, first thing we want to talk about is what does it actually mean? What does running the back half of an ultra look like, feel like? Um, are we slowing down less than everybody else? Are we keeping the same pace? Are we running a neg split? What does the data tell us? Um, once we know what the data tells us and what it actually looks like, we can talk about how we can improve that. So Ben, I'll throw to you first of all, what do the, what do the studies say on what happens in the back half of an ultra? So first I'll just say that whenever I'm trying to help a athlete plan out splits and that for a race, if it's got a good archive of previous results, we can go back and look at uh, runners at a similar level and start to look at, okay, what did their splits and that look like? And in particular, what I'm looking for there uh, is athletes who are clearly moving up the field. You can see the ones who might have been way back middle of the pack in the middle of the, at the start of the race and the first checkpoint and by the end they were up near the front that they managed to make up all these positions and it can really give this appearance of what they're doing relative to everyone else that they are negative splitting and speeding up but consistently coming out of studies that's not actually what's happening it's simply that uh faster runners are just slowing down less so it's not about trying to actually pick up the pace later on it's just that you aren't blowing up essentially you're just slowing down and deteriorating less than those around you and that gives the illusion that you are speeding up i know for me when i did utmb and passed 600 people in the last kind of 70k i definitely was not speeding up there was no speeding up happening but i was just slowing down a lot a lot uh, less than everyone else around me and i know that for you ben as well when you're third at the world skyrunning champs you were 30th, I think, at the like 10k mark, and then 10th with not like long to go. I think it was further back, I think it was 50th or something. I was, yeah, yeah, I was well back, and, and even then it was starting to make up a few positions at the top of that 1500 meter climb. But at the first 5k, I was maybe there were probably times I was back at 100 at the start, yeah. So definitely a case of moving faster than everyone else. And I know if, when I look at to my athletes' results, you know, one of the first things I look at is their. Uh, position, particularly in a big race like UTMB or UTA, I look at the position of them throughout the race. And as soon as you see their position went from 400 to 200, you know they've had a good race. If their position went from 100 to 100, it's like, okay, that's that's decent. If their On position went from 100 else. to 400, then you think, well, something, something went wrong there and need to kind of figure out what happened. What else does the study say, Ben? Any, have we got any kind of numbers on how much people slow down it is going to really vary in races and particularly because we're talking to trail runners where the nature of the course can really determine that if you've got a course like say the hong kong hundred where you've got very relatively flat and runnable first 50k and then super hilly lots of stairs in the second half then it doesn't matter how well you pace it you're going to slow down as far as pace is concerned a lot in the second half just because of the um, course 
when you look at something like road running, then you can have where you're just running laps, for instance, of a 10K circuit or something, you can look at the consistency a little bit more. There was a good study looking at 100K world champs. So these are obviously all very elite runners, the best of the best. So probably have some idea of what they're doing. And consistently, again, that showed that the faster runners, the ones up winning medals up in the top 10 and that, they were slowing down less than those around them. But you're still seeing that in the final 10K, they were still dropping 10%, um, uh, sometimes more 15% uh, from what they were doing their first 10K split. An interesting thing there was that the ones who were up around in the top 10, they often weren't slowing down at all until about the 50K mark, whereas those who were finishing further back were obviously often starting slow much earlier, sometimes as early as 20K. Yeah, the, the studies I've seen and the data I've seen usually indicates that you should be able to hold the same pace for about four to six hours. And after that four to six hour mark, depending on the athlete, then the wheels start to fall off a little bit. How much they fall off obviously depends on how fast you took off to start with. But it seems pretty consistent that no matter what the distance, whether it be 100K, 100 miles, it's after about six hours that we start to see the pace drop a bit. And as you've seen, Ben, it seems to me that 10 to 15% is kind of where the the best results are obtained. Any more than 15%, you start looking at where you lost time or what could be improved. Anything more than about 20%, and it's like, okay, something happened there. That, yeah, it really impacted their race, whether it was bad pacing or bad nutrition or something else. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting but even pointing the six-hour mark there because I've also seen another study looking at six-hour track running. So again, you're looking track very standardized where getting uh, the research subjects to first just run at self-paced, just trying to cover as far as they can, six hours, come back many weeks later once they've recovered and do it again, but forcing a slow, much slower start in the first uh, 36 minutes it yeah. was. And they ended up... They ended up with the same sort of distance on average, so performance wasn't hurt at all, but essentially it just felt a lot better. RPE was lower, ratings of fatigue were lower, even though the performance was the same. So just by cooling it a little bit earlier and slowing down less, though performance wasn't hurt at all, it felt a lot better, which I guess for most people listening, probably they would consider that a win and a better experience if they could get the same result and it sucked less. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, geez, starting off slower and finishing the same and hurting less um, sounds like a far more enjoyable experience. From my own data, using power meters, you know, as Ben said, with, with mountainous terrain, you can't really compare pace. Like, you've got no way of, of knowing whether 7-minute Ks in the back half of up, going up a hill is anywhere slowing down compared to 4.5-minute Ks at the start. But with power data, we can. And I see time and time again... When athletes have good races over 100k, they slow down around 10 to 15% from the first quarter to the last quarter. In a 100 mile race, if you can keep your slowdown less than 20%, you've done really well. And that applies world class elite to mid pack to back of the pack. There's no real difference in that if you have a good race. I mean, you can look, you can look at um, Zach Bitter's 100 mile records and Jim Walmsley's 100k records. And exactly the same thing happens. You see, I mean, Zach managed to keep his pace pretty consistent for about seven hours. And then, you know, you look at his Strava kilometer splits and they start to go up and down a bit, down a bit, down a bit. Um, Jim Walmsley, same thing. I think five hours, he held very, very consistent, but then slowed down. Um, 
it's just unavoidable. If, if you want to run your best, you've got to accept, expect that there will be a slowdown. The idea of an even-paced race doesn't exist. And the idea of pushing harder towards the end in an ultra is just fantasy. Essentially, fatigue does exist. No matter how fit you are, (laughs) at some point, if you're pushing hard in an ultra, at some point you will accumulate some degree of fatigue and that has an effect on performance. Yeah, it's different for a marathon. For a marathon, the jury is kind of still out a bit as to whether a slight neg split or a slight positive split is the fastest way to go. Um, Often you see in the world-class races, it's a slight negative split only because between usually 35 to 40k someone's put a surge in to drop everyone else so it's a slight negative split but sometimes in world record runs where the competition's not around you'll see a slight positive split so marathon that the jury's definitely a little bit out but an ultra the jury's not out at all it's it's well and truly gone home for the day and, and made its decision and that's you slow down and there's no avoiding it it's more a question of how much you slow down and what you can do to minimize that so given we now know that positive split is the only way to go, you have to get slower. Let's talk about why that happens. Why do we get slower? Why can't we find a pace that we can stick out all day long? I was going, well, I was going to just t- to chip in there because we talk about muscle fatigue and as Ben just said, fatigue does exist. Um, and I think the difference there be possibly when, if we're going to go down this avenue of the difference between sort of marathons and then stepping up to doing 100 miles or 100Ks and stuff like that is because it's much more multifaceted, isn't it? It's, it there's obviously an element of muscle fatigue. The, the, it just is there. But then there is also all of the other stuff that comes with ultras. And whether it's, you know, nutritional, um, the, the way that we're actually getting our energy into our bodies because we're using it and we're starting to become depleted in those things is obviously much more significant than it would be if it was in a marathon if you're going further than 100 kilometers you're then starting to talk about sleep deprivation and just general fatigue mental fatigue and overall just body fatigue as well as muscle fatigue so i think there's there's a lot to discuss in 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 the differences between certainly with a marathon and 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 the sort of the ultra stuff that we're talking about um that that's there's, there's a number of elements which you do have to consider when you are looking at the chances of trying to do anything as ridiculous as a negative split um, when you have got those elements to contend with. Yeah, it's, it's spot on there, Simon. I mean, nutritional is, is a massive one. If, if your nutrition isn't up to standards, then you're going to slow down a lot more than 20%. And we won't explore that too much today other than to say that nutrition is really important. Um, we'll discuss nutrition on a separate podcast and really delve in deep to... But difficult not to mention can, when we're talking about yeah, that definitely. sort of element yeah, for, of the reasons why you get slower. It definitely comes into it, doesn't it? It's, it's a massive one. And we all know, we know, we've all had races where our stomachs have gone south and uh, many athletes have felt the same and you just can't run as fast, as simple as that. Um, there's even good, good studies saying that if you can increase your carb intake up to 90, even 120 grams per hour that your muscle soreness is decreased because of that you know post post race muscle tests have shown there's less actual damage in the muscles through a high nutrition intake so there's lots to discuss i will say there, with caveat i have some i guess comments on that study where they were looking at 120 grams of carbs per hour that it was because for most people i think if they try and target that in something like a hundred miler they're going to be puking their guts out at some yes. point and so it's worth noting that study was in, it was a mountain marathon. So it was 
quote unquote only a marathon. (laughs) These were very elite runners, including two world champions. So we are talking best of the best. So they are completing it, you know, relatively quickly. I don't think they quoted the finishing times, but you can assume that they were doing well given the caliber they were talking about. Um, and they were still, and, and and it was done pretty well in that they um, did for get everyone to do a uh, gut training protocol for the four weeks leading in, and can assume probably because the level they were, the level of athlete they were using, they probably had done previous gut training as well, so they were best as good as they probably could be to tolerate those sort of higher loads, but they still had uh, three out Not of twenty six, I think, dropped yeah. from Gus. Yeah issues and there wasn't much comment there yeah i i I was sort of really interested to see okay but did everyone have like at least feel a little bit sick on that sort of intake and it was just sort of there was no discussion of that it was sort of you either dnf from gut issues or your gut was fine and it's like "Mm, there are a few more nuances there so yeah i do have a few Um, questions for that one jim walmsley had a quite a high intake in his 100k almost world record i think it was close to 300 uh, calories an hour um, but yeah, we'll dive deep into that in, a, in another podcast because there's lots of nuances, as Ben said, in that. But as Simon said, it is a massive factor. And unless you get your nutrition right, it can undo all the training that you've done. It's just a complete waste of time. So nutrition is, without doubt, a huge factor in ultras. Simon, you mentioned kind of sleep um, deprivation and other factors like that. And that's obviously also a huge factor and to the point where... There's a study comparing athletes in Tour de Jantz versus UTMB and finding out that the leg damage in Tour de Jantz was less than UTMB. And one of the reasons they said was due to the sleep deprivation. You just can't go as fast, so you don't do as much damage and you, you have to rest along the way as well. So, yeah, there's lots of factors involved. So sleep's definitely one of them as well. So yeah, I think here it's important to define different types of fatigue. So really, we tend with fatigue talk about two different bins. You've got peripheral fatigue and central fatigue. So essentially, peripheral fatigue refers to the muscles, the motor units, and involves the various processes associated with mechanical and cellular changes in your muscular system, which is probably what most people think of when they think of fatigue, is what's actually happening at a cellular level inside the muscles. But really important also is central fatigue, which is the various physiological processes occurring within your central nervous system. So essentially, central fatigue will reduce the amount of muscle activation for a given uh, rate of perceived effort, and peripheral fatigue is reducing your actual force output for a given level of muscle activation. Now, it's important to note there, central fatigue, that's not just, it's not just mental, like how bad do you want it? Like you can no. physically, the ability to send the signals from the brain to the central um, nervous system down to the muscles that you can have fatigue at a spinal cord level, for instance, where it's not just that you don't want it, it's that you physically can't send the signals to the muscles to contract anymore. So that is really important. And it does get a bit messy there trying to, factor out um things like yeah just how how badly do you want it so it it sometimes does get a little bit muddled there but it is yeah important to note that we yeah need to think about both what is happening to the muscles and obviously as they become damaged they can't contract as well and you accumulate various metabolites um can't contract as well but also just that ability essentially to send the signals to the muscles to contract yeah well they separated or tried to separate that out in that study on utmb um, which was recently done, where central fatigue was the primary reason for the loss of muscle strength, but obviously some physical strength, peripheral fatigue there as well. 
which is really interesting to find that the longer you went, the more central fatigue made accounted for the difference between um, post-run or post-race outputs um, after about, I think it was about six hours um, from, from memory, six to eight hours, that after that point, it seemed to be more central fatigue than peripheral fatigue. Even if um, you look at much shorter that study, so even if you're talking about, say, 40K bike time trials and stuff, looking at an hour and stuff like that, I think people sometimes underestimate how important central fatigue actually is, that it is such a big factor in endurance. Yeah, it's massive. So reasons we slow down, nutrition reasons we slow down, sleep deprivation reasons we slow down, muscular fatigue reasons we slow down, um, mental, just the how bad do you want it type reasons we slow down. Have we left anything else out? Heat will cause us to slow down. Altitude will cause us to slow down. So I guess yes. they were looking at, so people are always interested in sort of, as I said, the peripheral sort of side of things with the accumulation of various muscle damage. So obviously it, it seems quite intuitive. Muscle is broken. It can't contract nearly as well. The accumulation of various metabolites is, again, I think one people are very familiar with, like you'll still, it's not the 1950s anymore, but you still hear people talking about lactic acid as being your yeah. primary source of fatigue. And um, yeah, like... That that's just not true. <laughs> um, <laughs> la lactate is a fuel source. Um, it is true that the accumulation of hydrogen ions and the lowering of pH inside a uh, muscle will reduce its ability to contract. But um, that that you shouldn't be uh, anyway, having high levels of acidosis <laughs> during an ultra marathon. No, no. So it's definitely not uh, anything to do with lactate. That's for sure. I think we've covered all the, all the major reasons for fatigue. So let's move on and talk about what kind of things can we do to minimize the effects of fatigue on us in the back half of a, of a ultra. Um, it's a long list, so I want to kick the ball off with volume. How much does volume of our training affect our ability to run strongly in the back half? Um, now, I think... Now, we tend to think that the more you can run, the better, and, and to a degree that's true. But just running lots of Ks isn't going to necessarily bomb-proof your legs in the back half unless it's unless you can recover from the volume, unless that volume is relatively specific to the terrain you are training for. I mean, you can't take a, a, hundred and, a marathon runner who runs 100 miles a week on the road and put him in UTMB and think that he's still going to do well 120 Ks into the race. Um he might do well in a, in a flat race like Tarawera because it's enough tra uh, transition, but in a, in a mountain marathon, if all your miles are flat, then it's not going to transition as well. So that volume has to be relatively specific to the race you are training for. I say relatively because obviously there's room for flatter runs and, and hillier runs, but as we've discussed in our long run podcast, there's room for both flat and hilly, and, you, and you've got to look at how that volume is made up. I know for me, me personally, my, my best ultras have come when I've done 120 to 140 k's a week. Um, and when I've only done 80 k a week, I haven't run as well. Volume's a personal thing, depending on what you can handle as well. Yeah, it really comes down to, you're trying to build up that robustness and that muscular strength in order to, um, yeah, re reduce that sort of muscular damage and that that is happening. So in a sense, yes, 
and, and this I hope this never gets taken out of context. Yes, in that sense, more is better. That if you yeah. could handle two hundred mile weeks and be recovering from it well and feeling great, that would be amazing. But uh, most people will not be recovering and able to perform at an adequate level if performing that sort of volume. So it is about finding for where a given person is at what is the highest volume that they can actually tolerate well and still be yeah running well and not breaking down that yeah volume probably is a very big factor in that sense that you are yeah getting that muscular conditioning as well as obviously just long-term aerobic development which are all going to be very yeah important for being able to run strong in that second half in terms of volume, what do we think about doubles versus singles? Simon, I know in your recent training, you've ended up doing quite a few doubles. Just, you know, you go for a long run in the morning, do a social run at night, or you'd run with a client and then do another run later that day. How do you feel the difference between doing you know, a 20K run nonstop versus a 10 in the morning, 10 in the evening type split? What are your thoughts there? I think often when I've done that, it's I've, I've often, certainly when the doubles, are, if it's been a, on the same day, I've often had a slightly different focus on the on the actual sessions themselves. So there'll be sometimes where I'll I'll have a more hiking sort of or fast walking on technical terrain, and then I'll do something later in the afternoon which will be running. So it it kind of mixes up the specificity of what the actual session's about, rather than just going and doing two identical, rather than just getting a long run and splitting it in half at different points of the day and doing an identical morning run and an identical afternoon run I've, I've rarely personally done that I've always done something which is which has got two different elements to it partly because it keeps it interesting but it just mixes it up a little bit as well but uh, but but then on those other ones where you do the stuff that you know the, the extra long big days I think it does have that 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 mental capacity to keep on enjoying being out there for a long time as well as you know the the actual fatigue that we're talking about in our in our muscles to get over that to get ready for it to, to be able to to know how it feels um i think is is again it comes down to experience isn't it and, it, and it's teaching you experience it's giving you that that, that sort of that bottle of, of 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 experience that you can sort of refer to when it comes to the the day of the race um so both mental and sort of physical fatigue i think when you do the an eight hour or a 10 hour session because you're out there because you enjoy doing that but it's also it's it's teaching you to to get on with it um and i think that's that's got its its, its benefits and the specificity of the kind of the terrain that you're on will also be relevant to the to the to the kind of the event that you're looking forward to doing um and making sure that it's it's pertinent to that i suppose ben, i think we've it's played around with doubles for you too um, yeah I think it's a really interesting topic, doubles versus singles for uh, ultra runners. And I guess sort of to start off though with the big caveat that it, it part of also that probably one of the biggest parts of that discussion is are you time limited or energy limited? And 90% of people listening probably are time limited because they have a job or they, and, and or a family and that. And so they don't, they can't just dedicate as much time as they necessarily as in if they they were a full-time athlete and all they had to do is eat sleep and train they'd be able to sustain a higher training volume than they can with their current lifestyle so most of the time that answer of singles versus doubles ends up being determined by what can a person fit in so 
that sort of out of the way. Now, if you are someone, if you are listening and you are a full-time athlete and you have that choice of what are you going to do, then it gets really sort of interesting going into the weeds. And I think in theory, you can definitely sustain a higher total training load by doing doubles versus singles that you have a chance to essentially recover between sessions. And so, yeah, you can fit in just that bit more extra volume. And as we sort of said before, that probably is beneficial if you're trying to just sustain the highest possible load you can without breaking down, then we'll probably lean towards adding in at least some doubles there. Then, yeah, then you I mean, get to get into all the sort of the weeds of what are some possible advantages and how do you structure it that can have some, uh, as I sort of touched on in the, um, in the long run podcast, obviously there are advantages to sometimes just doing one big long single. Some advantages sort of doing the doubles though also touched on in that podcast would be things like various uh, gene expressions and that. You have a, basically a second opportunity to switch them on uh, by doing a double. And so potentially you may be able to enhance various adaptions that way uh, by basically doubling the, the number of times you signal for that adaption during the day. Also then, as Mike, when we touch on in more detail later in nutritional podcasts, when you have things like uh, depleted runs and that, that potentially you could be, have high carbohydrates for your first session, do a high quality session, and then by the second one in the afternoon, you might then be starting a little bit depleted and just doing an easy, low intensity and potentially reap some benefits that way by doing it in that slightly depleted state. So... Yeah, so in that sense, yeah, it is a nuanced discussion there of doubles versus singles, but I think in theory you can sustain a higher training load with doubles. Yeah, I'd agree totally. If I could just say about doubles, though, I think that the one advantage that some people who are time poor can have with doubles is that sometimes doing those extremely long days don't fit in, and some people can do a long run in the morning and a long run in the evening, and it can actually work for people who are time poor and at times and so conversely to what we were just saying i think it does actually sometimes suit different people for different reasons um finding five hours six hours doesn't work for a few people and uh i know that they've been able to separate doing in the morning doing in the evening and it's just solved that problem so it can work i think it can work for both both types of people Definitely. And the run commute can be fantastic for that to yeah. get yeah, in doubles where run yes. to work, run home. Then that way yeah, you can get in completely. good mileage off in that way with yeah, time that you would have to spend in the that. car otherwise. Yeah, yeah you can, if you can do that, do that, as long as you're keeping the pace nice and easy, it's an easy way to add more k's to the legs. And even if it's just flat running and you're training for a mountain race, if you can add 30, 40 k's to the legs just commuting. I mean, I know when I did UTMB, I wasn't running, uh, but I walked to work uh, 45 minutes each way. There's an hour and a half fast walk um, four days a week. So there's six hours of fast walking with a pack on the back. Did that help? Probably. No. Yeah. So, yeah. It, as long as you've got a good shower or it. understanding colleagues at work, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. And I think um, the caveat with all that, so Andy mentioned there he was walking rather than running in that. And that when we do say things like, you know, you want the highest volume that you can tolerate, increasing volume can be a long, very long-term thing that it's, you know, if you are... You, you, you might be building up volume for five, ten years sort of thing. That is, you don't necessarily think that you need to, in three months, go from running 50Ks a week to 150Ks a week because that will be a recipe for disaster. 
Yeah, it's also volume and intensity as well, isn't it? The amount of intensity. I mean, if you're walking to work with a backpack on, it's not the same as running every single place that you go. I mean, the, the difference in intensity. People walk as a matter of being human beings. So, I mean, if, if, you, if you're just using it as part of your training, well, that's, then it, you, you can have... As soon as you, just because you've got your watch on doesn't mean that your Ks have gone up that week because you tend to be walking anyhow. So sometimes I, I can see people switching their watch on when they walk the dog, when they go to the shop, because it makes the K. And essentially people are doing those things in the background anyhow. So yeah, what Ks are on your training program and what Ks are in your, oh, well, I'm recording this because it's on my watch, so therefore it's now become part of my training. It's, it's a kind of interesting thing because, yeah, and so I think that, you know, whether you're, you're doing the lawn and pushing the lawnmower around. Does, does that does that be part of your training? Because people do add extra load or extra volume without it being overly intense. Yeah, yeah. So to summarise, volume-wise, the more volume we can do, the better, up to a point, presuming it fits in with your lifestyle, presuming you can recover from it. Uh, in general, more is better. From that, leading into doubles, leads into kind of the next thing, which is back-to-backs. And Simon, you alluded to it, you know, splitting a long run into two. I know for me what worked really well was doing a Friday night run and a Saturday morning run um, rather than doing a longer Saturday run. Um, when I did my first ultra, I, th- I thought longer was better, so I would do five, six, seven, eight-hour runs on Saturday. That didn't seem to work very well for me, so the next time I tried um, two, building up to three or four hours Friday night and then backing it up with Saturday morning. Um, and for me personally, I-, I found that worked better. I got better conditioning with my legs. I wasn't as worn out for the rest of the week's training and race day it paid off really really well and I think progressions to back-to-backs um, you know once you can do you know an easy run Friday night a bit longer than your normal easy run followed by a long run Saturday morning um, you can start to play around with that and have some fun with it I built up to doing a hard hill session Friday night followed by an easy two-hour run then Saturday morning doing a four-hour um, hilly run um, that took several months to build up to, but that that worked really well. I knew what I can tolerate, but I could feel good at the end of a four-hour run on Saturday, having done what I did on Friday night, I knew I was in good shape for the race. So there's lots of ways we can do back-to-backs, but I think back-to-backs can be a really good way, especially for time for poor people, to, to fit some good volume and quantity training in. I think you just last week, you do a tempo session one day and then go and do a 30k run the next day you can feel it in your legs and it, it has that towards the end you start to feel it in your legs and you you have got that that fatigue that you, you're trying to you know bomb proof yourself against essentially so yeah yeah because when you do a longer run like if you're doing a six hour run then obviously the pace is going to be a little bit slower than if you did a, a two hour run friday night particularly with some tempo and then a four hour run saturday morning so you end up running faster overall um Yes, you've had a bit of a, a snooze in between the Friday night run and the sun, Saturday morning run. Um, but I think overall training loads probably get a bit higher splitting it like that, particularly if you're doing, as you said, Simon, doing a bit of a tempo or, in my case, some hill repeats on the, on the Friday night run. So it's even more load going in. And I think the combination of those two, for me anyway, worked better than doing a six-hour run. Whereas I know some of my clients, uh, we've got better results from doing a number of five, six-hour runs. And there's various reasons for that. You've got to look at uh, where your strengths and weaknesses are, what time you've got available to train, what you can recover from. Mentally, what you find, what you feel like you need. Like some people just feel like they need some longer runs and they don't have those longer runs. Then come race day, they're always questioning, I didn't run long enough, Um, I haven't got the endurance, I'm not going to do well. So there's lots of factors into that. Confidence, yeah. Yeah, but I think think back-to-backs can work really well. 
Yeah, and personally for me with back-to-backs, I've often actually done so Friday, I'll do Friday morning hill session and then, or, or speed session, and then sat both Saturday and Sunday do longer runs. Um, and particularly that it's that, okay, so Saturday I'm feeling good and it can be quite a strong long run that I've had almost 24 hours to recover from that hill session so there still might be maybe a little bit of soreness and fatigue from it but generally feeling pretty good but it's then getting up on Sunday when then uh that's when okay from the start you know you you are feeling it a lot more and it's getting to sort of simulate to an extent that feeling of what it's going to be like in the second half of that ultra where it is a bit more of a grind from the get-go and you're trying to just sort of hang on that obviously that can be quite stressful and so that might be too much for a lot of people um and do need to be careful what do you then do on monday and that to recover from it and then so yeah that that is sort of a the harder sessions are basically the more careful you need to be with recovering in that but it's something that personally i found i can respond well to and that yeah it's as much it is one of those things where it's debatable that on that second day, on that Sunday, have you basically at that point already from the long, strong run on Saturday, have you made, are you actually in a state to physically adapt that much more to that much stress? And honestly, that's debatable. That's hard to say. Um, some would argue no. And so in that case, it's a lot of stress without a lot of physical benefit. Um, maybe there is some physical benefit. Certainly, as I said, for me, it can be mentally that getting to go to that sort of uh, place where it's still less stressful, I think, on the body than if you did like a 10-hour long run on the Saturday by splitting it up over those two days. But you get to be reminded what it feels like where you're not feeling great from the start and you are just having to kind of grind and it is a bit of a slog. And yeah, I think we sort of touched on yeah sort of mental aspects a little bit but as much there it's a mental session trying to get used to yeah, that grind it, 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 when we defined what fatigue was before and whether it was going to be physical or physiological fatigue and or whether it was going to be mental fatigue something like what you're saying there ben does it very much feels like can you be it's it's getting your head around doing it isn't it as much as anything else mm-hmm. i mean i think also when we look at you know how long a run do you need to do to to be beneficial and how long's too long you've got to look at what the how they measure this kind of stuff and you know from an aerobic development point of view maybe going longer than two or three hours doesn't really make you any more aerobically fitter if you're doing a four hour or five hour or doing a six hour plus a four hour maybe the aerobic benefits are pretty much gained after two or three hours but in an ultra like in the back end of an ultra it's not because your breathing is getting out of control it's because your legs are so friggin' sore that you have to slow down you can't run very much so you've got to look at some of the studies you know some of these people that say look two or three hours is all you need to do from an aerobic point of view, that might be correct, but it's not all about that. And I know for me that mentally is one thing, but also just that physical conditioning of the legs, just helping them become stronger so they can handle that load is a massive part of why we do long runs and why we do back-to-backs, mm-hmm. um, aside from just the general aerobic fitness. I mean, my, yeah, so talking about, you know, on this theme of finishing strong and the mental side and that, the sort of anecdote well my personal experience that i always sort of think back on and reflect on was the 2014 uta 100 where i'd mentally going into the race i'd really prepared that my my mindset was i'm going to get to uh, qbh so that's about 80 kilometers into 100k um i want to get there feeling good and then i'm just going to see what happens 
I got to 80k feeling good, like, and everyone said that I was coming, that I looked by far the freshest coming into that checkpoint, and things were looking, and I was feeling pretty good, things were looking good, and then those who know the course, you then have a long 8k sort of descent down into Jamison Valley, and then about a 13 sort of k climb out to the finish, and you know, the descent is a descent, so you're still feeling pretty good. And okay, yes, you have now pounded your legs a bit with the 8K of running downhill, but I think there's a lot more to it than just trying to climb out of the that climb. I was just absolutely falling apart that just, yeah, it, it was not pretty. And it sort of was, you know, I hadn't prepared mentally for that climb, for that final grind, that when you are sort of really fatigued, what are you, how deep are you going to need to dig in that situation? And it was about 4K to go. So I was in fifth place and I was just kind of, how am I still, you know, how have I not been past sort of thing? And it was, yeah, 4K to go. So just sort of after Lura Forest, for those who know the course, and there's, uh, remember there's a thousand stairs climb coming in the final K. Um, so yeah, about 4K to go and I get caught by sixth place. And then something just... Snap. Snapped is perhaps the wrong word. Snap makes it sound like I turned around and punched <laughs> him in the face. I definitely did not do that. But it, it was suddenly just a f- like a, a switch got flicked in my mind. And suddenly, hey, I went from like struggling to walk to I could run again. And just suddenly just took off. Yeah. And looking at the splits, I'd won the fastest splits there for that final 4K. And just, yeah, put a big gap into him, even though he'd been clearly catching me that whole leg. And physically, I must have been the tiredest I had possibly been. Like, there's any lab test you could possibly do on me on that state, you know, just before the moment that he caught me. I was the would have been the worst possible state I was in of the whole day. And yet suddenly, boom, could run fast again just because I didn't want to give up fifth place. Like, just something snapped in your head. And that really hammered home to me how much fatigue is an emotional state as anything and how you really, I mean, I hate the word hack, but in that sense, try and hack the system in that sense of trying to really get that bit out of you and how important it is then mentally to prepare for that, that final climb for when it really does suck and being ready to deal with that and trying to, yeah, find those extra reserves and how important that is. And I guess there's sort of a, yeah, that was then really important for me. So a couple of years later, um, when I was, uh, running uta 100 again because that year that year i was not feeling good coming into 80k i was in the hurt locker from 40k it was not pretty but i was still able to just grind it out and doing well and by 5k to go that point i was my cars were just completely cramped locked up i'm just running on my heels at this point because i can't actually plan to flex anymore because i'm cramping just every single step but still just grinding it out because you sort of were mentally ready for that that that's what you'd prepared for and actually it was only at the bottom of ferber so a thousand stairs to go i was in third and then yun who's a very good stair climber he's won hong kong hundred was one minute up on me that i was told and you're like oh now you just gotta <laughs> empty the tank just going up this as your cars are just locked in place as you're just trying to yeah give everything god fortunate i did catch him and pass them and get second that year but it was sort of i really put that down to that experience in 2014 and really hammering home the importance of that mental side to really yeah dig deep and how important it is yeah sometimes to experience that in training also to mentally get ready for that yeah i don't think you can you can get anywhere near that kind of mental training if you're just doing two or three hour long runs 
I think, not to say you should go to the well every time in training, you definitely shouldn't, but I think, you know, you need to factor in, I did at least two or three kind of blocks of training, whether it be one long day or a combination of two or three days in a row, where you know you're going to get up on the last day, or you know you've got 20k to go, and you know you don't want to do it, you know your legs are sore, and mentally you've got to, got to teach yourself to get out of that, and um get over that to give yourself the confidence that on race day you can dig a bit deeper and we'll, we'll mm-hmm. delve deep into the mental side of things in another podcast but spot on in terms of the training you've got to get to a point where mentally you're struggling a bit if all your long runs are just cruisy three hour long runs and you can do that aerobically that might tick all the boxes but unless you're challenging yourself mentally then come race day you're just going to be left struggling well, and so it's from a training perspective, I am a big fan of the fast finish long runs. That, yeah. So there, when we talk about all this fatigue resistance and stuff like that, there, there is a lot of debate and sort of in terms of physiology as to what is actually going to improve it. Because it's really hard to do those sort of tests where you say, hey, just run a marathon and try and pick it up at the end. It's hard to get people <laughs> to sign up to do that. Um, but from what we've seen, sort of, you know, one, it does seem, but it is hypothesized that probably practicing pushing hard when you're tired is a good way to get better at pushing hard when you're tired. tired. Principle <laughs> of general specificity um, sort of suggests that. But also then just, you know, my experience, both an athlete and the coach, where I've seen people, when you know that you have, say, a hard, hard, well, harder 30 minutes at the end of your long run, and particularly if, you know, maybe it's back to back, so, you know, you're going to be carrying a fair bit of fatigue into that, and that, you know, you can be dreading it because, you know, like, oh man, I am so tired. How on earth am I going to pick up the pace? And then you do. And you come away with that experience. You're like, oh my gosh, like it worked. It happened. I did it. Like, and you had that experience then going into races and that when you suddenly have this final big long climb in front of you and it's feeling hard and you can sort of draw upon that experience to go, hey, I have been in a horrible physical state before and still been able to push hard and pick it up and it's worked and so th- that's as much yeah i think there is probably a physical element to those back to those i mean fast finish long runs but as much yeah it's mentally that you develop that one yeah you're practicing suffering but two you have that faith that you're like i can do it yeah i think the fast finish long runs um have a huge benefit because not only have you got for what you were talking about then then the mental kind of confidence to push hard towards the end You've got the fact that physically you're working harder on tired legs. You've got the fact that nutritionally you have to get that right, otherwise you're not going to be able to push hard towards the end of the run. And also pacing. If you don't pace it right, you're not going to to push hard at the end of the run either. So you're tying in pacing, nutrition, mental and physical all in one run. And not too many runs do that in our training block. So I think, you know, for me, fast finish long runs uh, are hugely important and virtually all my athletes will do them. Not, not every long run by any means. It's usually only three or four maybe in the kind of you know, peak couple of months before the race because um, they are quite taxing. And mentally, you know, to go out the door on a Sunday morning when you've got tired legs and know that the goal is to pick it up in the last half hour is you know, mentally pretty challenging. Um, so I certainly don't recommend them as a regular part of your training program. But if you can fit two or three of those sessions in in the kind of you know, six to four to eight weeks out from your key race, I think it's hugely beneficial. Anything else on fast finish long runs, boys? I, th- I would definitely, I, th- I would totally agree with the fast finish. Um, it's in, ex- in my experience, just in races and stuff like that, like Ben was saying with his 
things in UTA, but certainly that idea that you're hunting down people or you're feeling good towards the end and that need to be... I remember in some of my very early races, you, Andy, telling me, you know, that sometimes you might have goals and stuff like that, but as the race has developed, your goals have probably changed, but reassessing those goals and then sometimes just saying, right, I've got this far to go, that's the time I want, or you've got information about who's in front of you and you know I've got this many positions which are worth hunting and it, it, it can be that although you're not going to as we keep saying you know run a faster second half you can still mentally and physically pick it up and finish strongly with effort and I think I, I've certainly set a time before where I've had a, an arbitrary number in my head which has changed for the better or the worse as the race has gone on but then thinking right I know I've got 10k to go I want it to be under 24 hours I want it to be under 20 and given something to be able to push so that you are keeping that mental motivation going because I, that idea that you know a rabid dog or a man with a gun suddenly pops out of the bush you <laughs> would start running again no matter how mentally tired you feel you a lot of the time it's almost boredom it's like your body's I don't have to keep running I could stop if I wanted to and knowing yeah. that it's actually not physically it often is just mental and we keep saying oh, well mental's a different thing but it's it's th there's so many aspects to it that that I, I do remember telling myself that, that, no, that's the time I want now. I'm going to go sub whatever that number was and pushing and pushing it. And, and st you know, instead of that, that next tree, which is what I'm going to aim for, it gave me something to keep on going and aiming for or somebody at a checkpoint saying, you've got three runners ahead of you and knowing that you can pick it up. And, but also when it's, things haven't been going so well, maybe mid-race where I have just switched off and I'm just going through the motions and getting caught by somebody and thinking, actually, I'm not really that tired. I've just stopped trying. And you've kind of got into automatic mode and certainly um, yeah. the GSCR race. I, I do remember being caught by a couple of people and I remember them saying, whoa, you've, you've just found some energy and because they thought they'd hunted me and they'd caught me. I'd, must, I'd pretty much just switched off. And when they did, I realized that actually I was still there and I could, I, I got stronger and better as I went because it just, it shook me up, it woke me up. And uh, I think that within that within those sorts of races, it, it is so much about keeping switched on and trying to remain focused for, depending on the terrain or stuff like that, you know, what is it that's going to motivate you to, to actually wake yourself up and whether it's places or it's times or, or whatever it is, it's, it, those sorts of things are ways of at least pushing through those points where you do feel yourself starting to slow down, which is inevitable. But um, but yeah, so I, I think there's been a few different times within the races where I thought, actually, I've, I've finished really, really well just because an external things came in and went, ah, that's something to aim for. And that that's not because I've suddenly gained any energy. That's because my head's shifted in its in its perspective, I guess. Yeah, I think that can be trained for too. I think if you, you know, using your fast finish long runs as an example, if if you get to a point, you think, right, I'm going to try and make it home from here in 30 minutes. You know, you know in your Strava logs that, now, your typical time for that is, say, I don't know, 32 minutes. You think, right, I'm going to try and make it home 30 minutes. Or, um, you know, somebody passes you. You know, I, I was on a run this morning and this guy passed me and I kind of thought, oh, okay. Uh, I, did, <laughs> I, I didn't pick it up because it was, an, it was meant to be an easy recovery run. But I know there's been runs, and, you know, when someone's caught oh. up to you, as you've said, where you've gone, actually, I'm probably going a bit easier than I should be going. I'll pick it up a little bit. So I think you can train those things in your own training if you have a mind to do that. Um, you know, if, if you're using power, for example, you know, in a fast finish long run, I'll give my clients 
okay, I want you to pick it up by 15 watts or 20 watts. So they've got a specific target. And I think the more you get used to giving yourself targets, as you said, Simon, I know you've, your original time goal might have changed, but you've refined that and refined and refined it. Keep giving yourself a target. The target is really meaningless what it actually is. It's just some method to push a bit harder. It doesn't really matter what the target Absolutely. is. It's just so much. So I think the more you practice that kind of stuff in your training, because you know, as, as much as we're going to separate the physical from the mental a little bit in this podcast, you can't. Like They're, in, they're well and truly interlinked. So you've got to think about how you can create a physical environment where the mental environment gets challenged and vice versa. So I think, yeah, that's, that's really important. Because I guess one gives you the tools to be able to do the other. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Um, back to backs, right. Next thing I want to talk about, uh, speed work. Speed work sort of, you know, a lot of, when I take on, I don't know about you guys, when I take on new clients, you know, some of them are quite reluctant to do speed work. Oh, I don't really like speed work. I find it hard. I get injured when I do speed work. It's an ultra. You know, do I really have to do speed work? Um, to which the answer is obviously, well, you don't have to, but you know, you greatly benefit from doing speed work. Um, for, for all kinds of reasons. I mean, you know, in, in simple terms, you know, speed work helps improve your basic cruising pace from where it was to, you know, five or 10 seconds per K faster. Um, but in terms of finishing, keeping on, on point with this podcast on finishing strongly, speed work is like a, a run specific strength program. It um, loads your legs up more than even long runs do. So you condition your legs more, you, you get better leg strength, which enables you to be stronger towards the back end. Um, so I, I think without speed work, you are really missing a trick in terms of developing that fatigue resistance in the back half of a long run. I'd agree with it. It's sometimes the very reason that um, some people, as they get older, have, have, have decided to go into ultras. It's yeah. <laughs> finally, I don't have to do speed work. <laughs> I can run for longer and I can run slower. And it's almost a sanctuary to I can start just to enjoy going out for a run and, and it is i think as coaches we, we do see the benefits of all of the how to maximize things but often i i do find it difficult to convince people to do a not just a hill session but a hill session which is a speed hill session or a specific speed session oh do we have to do because and i understand that it, it, a lot of people have it's have, those days are finished or i never was into that and that's why i want to run for a long time relatively slowly because I just like it for that reason so that that reason to use it we understand as being you know a way to maximize their their potential but it it is met with quite a lot of resistance I, I often find um from, from yeah. quite a few people for different reasons and and I, I understand part, why I think it it's part of more. the challenge of, <laughs> it does I think it's part of the challenge of being a coach is trying to find a way to get your athlete to do some form of speed work um that they can still enjoy to a degree. One thing I've found that's made a massive difference to a lot of people is telling them to go easier on the other runs. One of the things we find is, and we see it all the time, is people run their easy runs too fast and their long runs too fast. Um, so consequently, when you try and add a speed session on top of that, it's really difficult. Um, I had an athlete this morning who said, oh, I really struggled in my speed work, but looking back, I realized I ran my easy runs too fast that week. It's like, well, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So once you can get people on board with running their easy runs easy, um, then adding speed work... Uh, which, is, is which isn't as easy as it sounds. No. Because no, a lot of people not. refuse to run slow runs slow because they want to run at a certain pace. And, and, and I've got a lot of clients, but also friends, that just when you look at their slow runs, 
their slow runs aren't as slow as they could be and it does have a consequential effect on, on later runs in the week for definite. But that well, sense, it also then helps teach you that that quote-unquote slow run, if we're talking about an ultra, maybe race pace or sometimes still even quicker than yeah. race pace. And so yeah. the fact that having this speed work, it helps really teach you that sense of pace a bit more that you learn you know, what these faster, these higher intensities feel like, but then it really does make you appreciate what is actually a sustainable, easy pace. And that, you know, you, you get to practice having that bit of fatigue from the speed session, and now you've got to take it nice and easy. And what is actually the sort of pace that, yeah, you can keep up. And again, touching on that mental side earlier that you said, that as we said, it's like, people go, oh, it's hard. It's like, yeah, well, the second half of the ultra is going to be hard too. So this is your way to practice that sort of, hard. some of those mental <laughs> games as well with Absolutely. out inducing nearly as much uh, musculoskeletal damage as you would by running an 80K long run. Yeah, it's funny when I, when I tell people what... Um what power or what kind of pace they should do their easy runners at. So I, go, I can't, I can't run that slow. Like if I, if I go that slow, I'll be walking. It's like, you do realize that that pace should be running a 10 hour hundred K race, which is four hours quicker than your PB. It's like, ah, ah, okay then. So yes, you can run that slow. You're just used to running easy runs at a faster pace than you should. So when I tell you to slow down, it feels really awkward, but you know, I think I've said in the podcast in the long run that, um, Often when you run at a pace that's a lot different to what you normally run at, it can make you quite sore, even if that's slower. Oh, definitely. And if, if you're if you're easy runs and you're kidding yourself, your easy runs are like five minute Ks, but your 100K race pace is six and a half minute Ks, then yeah, it doesn't feel comfortable because you're used to running one and a half minutes per Ks quicker all the time. Yet you it's the awkwardness the of running that speed sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had someone on Strava last year, the year before, I can't remember now. Um, he said, look, Andy, I know you're a decent runner, but how come your your, your runs are so slow? <laughs> Which I had to laugh at. Um, because my I don't have an ego on Strava anymore. My, some of my runs are six-minute Ks. I mean, there's a bit of soft sand um, involved in that. but um, It depends what you're doing. It's, yeah. it's an easy run. It's not meant to be hard. Yeah. So once you get used to that idea that easy runs are meant to be easy... Um, and by doing them easy, you can increase your volume because you're not so sore all the time and you're not getting injured. And by doing the easy runs easy, you can also do fast finish long runs and you can do speed work. Then it all starts to make sense again. But that's it. If you, in your speed sessions, you could still be doing three minute, three minute, 20 Ks, but you could still afford to do your slow runs, like you say, at a 5.30. Because at times, that's it's okay to do that. It, it is... Because even we were talking about trying to get cadence and what is cadence, what's optimal cadence. And when you start running slowly, my cadence goes out the window completely. And it just feels awkward. But as you say, when it comes to race day, it's learning to be able to run at that speed where it's not just a sloppy death walk where you're getting, you're yeah. just plowing through it. But to find a comfortable form and comfortable cadence at a slow pace is a skill. And, and I think I tend to make my recovery runs that I ask people to do, to at least be mindful of trying not to make it, oh, right, here we go, I'm just sludging around trying to get an hour done. It's make the hour have a purpose, make it slow, but make it good for, make a good cadence because it's efficient. It's, 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 it's good to be able to hold your body in a certain way because it's too easy to think slow means, you know, slumping around yeah. sloppy style and stuff like that and i think if you can 
get all of that muscle memory in your slow recovery runs, it should make those back ends of races for the majority of the people who, who, who uh, participate in these races, it should at least mean that they are familiar with it. Yeah, I think then this applies much... easy to get sloppy. This applies much less to you because your pace at the end of a 100k is still the same as your normal easy run, long run pace. But for, for us mere mortals, our kind of last 20k is definitely slower than um, long run or, or even easy run pace. And I know for me, when I first started doing ultras, I found it a real challenge to run slowly. It was either run what I felt like running, which is kind of five minute k's or quicker, or if I couldn't do that, I'd walk until I could recover enough to run five minute k's again. And of course, that's not optimal in any way, shape or form. Uh, after that first race, I kind of had to rethink everything I did and then got used to how to chug along at five and a half minute k's and feel comfortable and feel relaxed with that. Um, because come race day, that's what I'm going to spend a vast majority of my time doing. So I think we're too reluctant to kind of slow down in our easy runs and even our long runs when the reality is that come race day, we're going to be running slower. So you may as well get efficient at doing that. Otherwise, you, you know, you're just going to suffer on the, on the race day. Yeah, it's interesting. It all makes me think a bit about the debate of the, the importance of running economy in ultra marathons because it's certainly... And so running economy simply means the amount of energy that it takes to run at a given pace essentially usually measured via oxygen uptake once you if you're in a aerobic sort of steady state and so we know with um if you're running you know a marathon for instance on the road that running economy is incredibly important and so much of getting of being a better marathon runner comes down to being able to consume being able to become more economical at race pace and that is yeah so much of the training will center around that and same sort of on the track that running economy incredibly important and it's actually a bit more of an open question sort of in ultra running that particularly by the time you're looking at say 100 milers and that it tend it's the studies that look at what what then correlates with performance running economy doesn't tend to correlate nearly as well and i think part of that comes down to how those studies are usually done that naively it seems like well of course as we've sort of been hinting at that at some point like the amount of energy you're consuming being more efficient surely that's better and i think it's partly because they these tests when they measure running economy are done when you're fresh and plenty of studies have sort of shown that again that your running economy will evolve and change as you fatigue that it's not surprising that your running form changes and we tend to see people start moving towards it can be a higher cadence or essentially usually it is revolves around reducing impact forces that essentially your legs are so beat up that you your body will essentially you subconsciously start sacrificing running economy in order to save your legs because muscular damage becomes more of a priority than bioenergetics but if you can have I, I suspect that if you can have sort of practiced and trained in that either that fatigue state or at least at that pace and in that sort of closer to closer to race running form essentially um that yeah developing that economy in that sort of state is probably more important than becoming the most economical person over a 100 meter sprint it's interesting on, on running economy there's one it's kind of two sides of the coin there because one side of the coin is what you said ben is that we ultra runners will tend to sacrifice anything to minimize the muscular damage um, so we'll change our stride length and our vertical uh, We'll use poles. 
Poles reduce <laughs> running economy. Poles make you consume yeah. more energy for a given pace. But the whole yeah. reason people use poles is because it's trying to spare your legs. Saves your legs. Uh, and on the flip side of that, they've done some studies on running economy. Instead of doing it fresh, they've done it on at the end of 100-mile races. And they've found that their running economy has improved. But, of course, they're running slower, much slower. So it's like, okay, so the amount of oxygen they're using to run at this slower pace when you even roll out is lower. So, yeah, we still don't know with clarity what um, the deal is with running economy uh, because also with running economy, you've got over terrain, like we're talking trails. So that changes things as well. You know, just because you might be more economical on a treadmill test after a race doesn't mean you're more economical on a trail going up or down. So I, I think in general running, any benefits of running economy, in the usual way we define it, probably overrated. Um and being more running running economical at the paces we're more likely to run at is probably more where we need to be focusing, um, which is another argument for doing your easy runs easy and your long runs easy. All right. Next, we won't talk too much about speed sessions. I think the actual content of speed work and the kinds of sessions is worthy of its own podcast. Suffice to say that I think every runner should be doing some form of speed training. Well, I want to move on now to downhill training because um, I know for me, I mean, when I trained for UTMB, I was living in London and one of my key sessions, which I think had a massive difference, was once every second week for about, I think I did about five or six of these sessions, I would do steady up for four minutes, super fast down for three minutes and just do about six to eight reps. So it's only about 20, 24 minutes of fast downhill running. You might think, well, how can 20 minutes of running be beneficial for a 100-mile run in the mountains? Um, anybody who's ever done super fast downhill running will go, yeah, that would have hurt. And yeah, it really did hurt lots. Um, at the end of the kind of sixth rep of three minutes, my legs were just a quivering, shaking mess. But then I would force myself to go out for an easy two-hour run after that and then back it up the next day with four hours of hills. So you can see by putting all those elements together, it makes for a really intense kind of block. But downhill running, the conditioning you get, that eccentric loading you get, smashing your heels on a fast downhill is, is second to none in terms of leg conditioning specific to an ultra. Of course, it comes with an extremely high risk of injury, particularly when you're really forcing the pace downhill. Um, I would rarely tell my athletes to force the pace downhill. Usually it's kind of like easy downhill, then we build up to just let gravity help, just kind of don't break deliberately just kind of let the legs flow a bit more let gravity help keep the cadence up light landings um to okay don't force the pace but don't run it slow either kind of like run it fairly quickly without smashing yourself and only then would i say okay now you know i'm pretty confident you could handle a super hard downhill session but for a lot of athletes that's kind of very end of the spectrum but I think it's hugely mm. valuable to build up towards. I don't know what your guys' experiences of fast Yeah, like it is a controversial one that you'll see a lot of people, coaches out there sort of say, yeah, don't do these. Then honestly, if I had to just say a blanket statement and I didn't get to put things in context, I would also say don't do it because for a majority of people in a majority of cases, it probably is going to be a little too intense. Like you do need to be really careful and really yeah. monitoring. If you have any niggles and injuries and that, probably steer clear as you said, you're only looking to do a few of these sessions really in an intense build-up that you're not doing this week in, week out. But yeah, I, I agree that I think it can be really beneficial for both 
the perspective of conditioning the legs and also is just skill development for running downhill that it seemed and we'll probably touch on this more in another podcast that because it's a really common thing that people sort of say oh i'm not a not a strong downhill runner um and so yeah really developing that uh skill yeah it can be through specific sessions or then just in long runs as i think we touched on the long run uh podcast just working some of the working the downhills in your long runs and that to get that extra conditioning but ultimately yeah building up that strength it's that that eccentric loading that uh that muscular damage that protection against the muscular damage is really what we're after because that is going to be such a huge contributing factor to the fatigue that slows you down and the, the good thing about that protection factor is it lasts quite a while i mean they did a study with, i think it was on arms unfortunately but um, there's no reason why it wouldn't apply to legs where they gave uh, some participants a, a hugely hard arm workout and then what they did is they split the group up into i can't remember how many people but one group repeated that same workout again after two weeks four weeks six weeks eight weeks and ten weeks and what they found was that even after eight weeks of not doing anything at all between their initial workout and repeating that workout eight weeks later even after eight weeks, there was a significant reduction in, in post-exercise soreness compared to the first time they did it. After about 10 weeks, you kind of were as sore as you were 10 weeks ago. So it yeah. just goes to show you don't need to do many sessions like this. You just got to do a few and have it within eight weeks of your race and you're going to get the benefits in your race. Yeah, the repeat bout effect is really interesting because there is both, yeah, a cellular, we were talking before about the peripheral versus central fatigue. Both elements seem to factor in that there is, yeah. Uh, yeah, peripheral adaptions as well as central adaptions and so the central adaptions is really interesting because they'll do studies where they it has so it won't be running it'll be something like leg extensions or something like that in one leg and you don't train the other leg but you go retest and you see a protective benefit in the leg that didn't yeah, get trained yeah. interestingly so you'll see it in uh, if you do like to like muscle so quad and quad you don't get any protection if say you go do bicep curls and you don't then get any quad protection. So it does have to be the same sort of muscle groups, but we are talking about using running to protect you for running. So that is all good. <laughs> Definitely. It is that one thing that they can say, because hill, hills are the, like the magic formula that we have for, for, for using for so many things. And, and I always, you know, talk about the, the benefits of amazing, uh, are amazing for, you know, hill training, but it is always that downhill is the thing that's the danger and trying to get people to, it, 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 that's partly experience as well like you say gradually you're introducing the come down you know the recovery downhill then the gravity downhill then they push it downhill um, and it, that's partly to do with people's skill level of coming down too hard and also that, that idea of being able to land lightly on your feet coming downhill can give you at least some protection through just experience and practice of doing it but as, you, as we said before, if we're talking about that back end of race and what it is that people, you know, it's, slow them down, the amount of times that people just say, my, my quads were smashed. And it seems yeah. it's such an important area to be able to train for in whatever way you can because smashing of the quads is one of the, apart from nutrition, is one of the things that you hear people mm-hmm often lament that they didn't do enough of when it comes to training you, 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 the guts can go wrong all these sorts of things can go wrong but you very rarely hear people say you know often you'll hear people say i wish i'd done more quad training oh my quads were absolutely mullered by the end of the race and it, it's such an important area of slowing down towards the back end of a race that what your quads can do 
and because you can run down hills, but sometimes when you've got very, very technical stuff, seeing people limping down because and almost coming yeah. down backwards, and and it is, it's 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 your quads that is, that really can be such a benefit to you, um, and can be the very reason that the back end of your race is slowing, and and, and what you've got available to you in training might affect that if you don't have you know. The, the, the kind of the stuff that you need the hills that you need but if you can be specific and get it involved it's certainly one of those things that you commonly hear people say was the reason that things went so so awry towards the end of the race the quads were just done yeah when it comes to technical stuff if your quads are blowing and you're trying to descend down a technical um, descent towards the end of a race you haven't got the strength to handle a slightly longer stride length to get over that rock or whatever so you're always shortening, shortening, shortening because you just, oh, you know. It can become pathetic time, when you see it sometimes, yeah, absolutely. You buckle and fall over. So oh, it's horrible. Even, even for me, because I didn't have any technical stuff at all, the fact that my quads were so conditioned meant that I could still run down the kind of laddered hills, even if they were slightly technical, because I had the strength to know that, okay, if I jump off this rock here and land a metre and a half down there. Yes, my quad's not going to go kaboom and blow up. It's going to go, yeah, okay, that hurt, but I can do but it. But when you don't have that, you see people, they almost need crutches to get down there or yeah. they need support you lose so to get much down. Time. And it, it is, it's that, it's coming down. It's, and especially because it's not like when we talk about coming down hills, they're not very uniform, often very uniform roads. You could be very uneven rocks and boulders which are requiring you to be able to hold your leg in a certain position for an amount of time and your quads or your knees, everything's shaking and you see yeah. people just gen- you know picking up sticks and using themselves just to lower themselves down one step uh, and yeah it's it's not this idea that we're just running down a, a nice even hill it's it's the that level of control that you lose if you don't have strong quads yeah. but what is interesting we're talking about quads here we've been talking about running downhill to get better at running downhill but even in studies where they'll look at just say running on a f- flat level treadmill flat. for 24 yeah. hours it's the knee extensors, so the quads, yep. where you primarily see the fatigue. That, yeah, conditioning of the quads is important regardless of the terrain that you are running on. Well, well people fast. think hill training; they think about running uphill. Most people think hill training, run uphill, and it's not until you met. Like often, I've said downhill running, and people, oh, I've never thought of that. And that <laughs> might sound like a patronising thing to say, but a lot of people haven't thought about it and it's just it's just the way to get back to the bottom of the hill so you can work hard to get back up it for a lot of people and when you mention it it's 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 obvious when you say it and most people go oh yeah that sounds so obvious but it's not often the the most important thing that people think about or have ever thought about in their training um and also in racing it's often the area that people can really really push harder and make up a lot more time the differential between people going uphill for the majority of the pack is less than those who yeah. can really descend quickly. Yeah, and what definitely. is interesting these days with power meters, how we can really look at people's data and break it down into what are they doing uphills, on flats, on downhills, and it is something you see quite a lot where, yeah, pe- people will have the biggest blowouts on the downhills yeah. that they yeah. might, you know, say they do pretty well on the flats and the uphills and they might only drop 10% over the course of their ultra and then you look at the downhill and it's, 20 30 percent and it's yeah okay yeah they were just absolute quads were just blown they couldn't descend anymore because in the back half of an ultra you're hiking all the hills anyway and the difference in hiking speed between you fresh and when you're tired is not that much whereas the difference in downhill speed between you fresh and when you're tired is massive it's a game changer massive. total game changer yeah yeah, yeah. 
Um, just before I forget, Ben, you mentioned on, on flat stuff. I mean, anybody who's done a, a hard road marathon knows it's, it's their quads that are the sorest thing. And, you know, just because your race doesn't have hills, if you're contemplating either a flat marathon, even a flat ultra marathon, downhill stuff is hugely beneficial to help prevent that kind of blown quads towards the end of it. Um, speaking of blown quads, the, the next thing on, on the list I wanted to briefly discuss is strength training, just because I think that's another area where we can train the quads and, and muscles in general, obviously, to have better fatigue resistance towards the end of an ultra. I know for me, when I look back over the miles that I've done and look at the amount of strength training I've done as build-up for each of them, the ones I've done best at are the ones I've done the most strength training at, and the ones I've kind of really faded at have been the ones where, for whatever reason, I've done little to no strength training at. So I'm a big believer in, in getting run-specific strength training in because I think that can really help um, with that eccentric loading towards the back end of an ultra. Um, but I know I know you do regular strength training, and I'm sure find that um, beneficial from that point of view. Yeah, absolutely. That I'm a big fan of it, and yeah, I've been doing yeah a couple of strength sessions a week for many many years now. And I think it would be its own. We could probably do our own podcast on yeah, I think strength training specifically. Will. But yeah, in essence, yeah, as we sort of alluded to with the downhill, trying to build up that specific strength that you're trying to do something similar with the gym work. Yeah, um, and the last thing on my list, anyway, is races as a form of training better to get uh, to run the last half of your race better. Um, we we all know that you know if if you do a hard twenty k, thirty k, forty k, there is a training effect from that. Um, obviously, with races, you've got to look at the recovery time you need after that race, and what training you could have done instead of doing that race as to whether that race is adding to the build-up of your major race. And we talked about this in the Planning for Races podcast. But I know quite a few of my athletes um, usually take a few races before they perform to their best, um, purely because the conditioning they get from those races helps build up that uh, conditioning in the legs so they can run faster in the, in the back half. Me personally, I, I don't like to race that often, so it doesn't work for me. I, I prefer to train hard but I know plenty of athletes out there that do like to have a few shorter races in their legs to condition the legs. Now, Ben, you've tried both approaches. You've tried kind of not doing too many races and going into a big race and also done a number of races leading to a big race. What have you found works best for you personally? So um, I agree that there probably is a physical conditioning element that you are probably pushing a bit harder in a uh, race than you would in any training session. And typically also you do really make sure you have good recovery either side of it to really make sure you reap those adaptions i think there's a big mental component to it again as well that this is where you get to practice pushing that bit harder than you otherwise would in training i mean and that's why i guess i'm a big fan of yeah doing personally doing sort of shorter races and that leading into ultras that you just get to practice pushing really hard (laughs) so that you (laughs) you are a bit more familiar with it sort of going in and personally also when we're talking about pacing and that and that part of it is just not going out too hard so that you slow down as little as possible 
doing shorter races personally helps me get getting go, going hard out of my system. <laughs> like I've, yeah, my yeah. ego has had That's that satisfaction. That it's, got yes. To, yes. it's got to push hard. It's got to go fast and know how much that burns and That's that hurts. And you're like, point. yeah, okay, we want to avoid that today because yeah. we need to be doing that, you know, in nine hours time, not right now. That it sort of helps, yeah, settle that itch to really dig deep right from the get-go personally. And so, yeah, that, that's why I quite like sort of having those shorter races. Because uh, you're right, even, even getting in, in a race where you've got other people around you, it gets it does get you excited, doesn't it? And I think, mm-hmm. like you say, scratching that itch so that you go, oh, yeah, that's how that feels. When it comes to the actual A race, at least you have got that, you've scratched that well and truly because sometimes it does, when you haven't raced for a while, it's so easy to get caught up in the day and, and, and enjoy the, oh, that... You, you, you're kind of looking at other people and thinking, oh, they look fast, they don't look fast. And you kind of hang on to other people's paces and all that kind of nonsense. Because you, you, generally speaking, you, 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 know, you can't pick runners. The person that doesn't no. look like a runner is a gun. And the person that looks like a gun isn't necessarily, you know. And it is good to scratch that itch and know that you are, you've got it out of your system and you can remember to pace yourself. It's your race, your day sort of thing. When we talk about how sort of a perceived effort changes on race day that particularly early on when you are so fresh because you're tapered you are really excited because of all the hype around race and you haven't felt that in a while it can be one either overwhelming and you can sort of be over aroused but also then it is just that you you're not used to that sudden change of how things just feel different on race day and so you can really kid yourself into thinking like oh yep this is the pace I can sustain for 10, 15 hours. And it's like, nah, mate, that's two to three hours tops. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't talked too much about pacing. I think it's probably a good place to finish off this one and just a bit of a discussion on pacing and how to develop pacing. Um, before we go into pacing for, for a race, I, I think pacing is something that we can learn with our speed sessions and our hill sessions and our long run. We talked about pacing in terms of a fast finish long run. You've got to start out at a level where you are confident that come whatever mark in time you've been given or you want to pick the pace up, that you can pick it up. Pacing also comes into play with speed sessions and hill sessions. I mean, I know for me, one of the, one of the best pacing sessions I used to do was a three by 20 minute tempo run. So I'll just go out 10 minutes, turn around and try and make it back in 10 minutes. So straight away, you've got two markers there. One, how far you went out. But if you went out too far in the first 10 minutes, then you weren't going to make it back in 10 minutes unless you really busted your ass and you quickly knew that that was not sustainable. The second rep, you still had to make it to that same point again and make it back again and likewise for the third rep. So with sessions like that, they don't have to be 20 minutes. It could be three minutes. It doesn't really matter. But the more you can apply pacing principles into your training, the better you are at going to be thinking about, okay, this is going to be too fast for longer races. Obviously, there's a skill there, and the longer the race goes, the easier it is to go too fast. But I think, you know, if you never think about pacing strategies um, at all in your training, then come race day, no wonder you're going to be going out too fast. But if you're thinking about that in your long run, thinking about your speed sessions and hill sessions, then you start to develop your own innate, innate sense of pace. I mean, if I got a bunch of runners from really experienced to kind of beginners and said, right, I want you all to run 10 minutes that way, turn around and run 10 minutes back, and as fast as you can, and all make it back together. I know without a shadow of a doubt, the experienced runners could do that. They wouldn't ask, um, what pace do I have to run that at? Whereas all the inexperienced runners would be going, well, how fast should I run that at? Can you, like, what? They'd have no idea, because they've got no sense of pacing and, and duration. Whereas 
you know, your elites, whether it's, you know, one minute or one hour. I mean, you've got swimmers, for example. You could say to a swimmer, I want you to do 100 metres on 56.5, and the next rep, I want you on 56.8, and they can do that because that's what they do. And good runners are the same. Now, it doesn't matter what, whether it's two minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes, whatever. If someone tells me to go out and do 10 by two minutes even pace, I can do it without looking at my watch because I've run for 50 years. You know, it doesn't matter whether I'm not as fit as I usually am, I know how to pace myself. I think we don't do that enough in our own training. We, we tend to tend to go out, like the typical interval session, people go out too fast and they do the first rep in four minute Ks and last reps in 4.15. Whereas what I try and do with my athletes is, like, let's do your first in 4.15 and the last one in four minutes and now let's try and narrow the gap so they're all within like one or two seconds of each other. And then you can start applying that to longer runs you can start applying that to 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, long runs with fast finishes. But unless you're kind of thinking about pacing, then come race day, you've got no idea how to pace a 10K. How the hell are you going to have a chance of pacing 100K? Because you just don't have that innate sense of kind of pace and effort, um, how it feels, speed versus the effort, what the decay in pace is going to be like, what the increase in effort is going to be like, and all those factors that go into that. So I think unless you're practicing that, it's going to find it really difficult to pace on race day, no matter what the distance of the race is. Um, and you think that most runners, like you say, it, I don't think you'd have to be elite. You've got to remember that a lot of people who are doing these are, are experienced long-term runners who aren't, who just because you're middle of the pack doesn't mean that you're not running hundreds of kilometers per week um over the last 20 years and so you've got a lot of people that, that we obviously coach and, and and people within in the endurance sort of world that are very very experienced just because and, and therefore pacing is is part and parcel isn't it of, of what we have to do i mean even, even when I, I i coach kids at a running club and you can just tell the kids that have been there for 18 months to two years compared to the ones that turn up when you yeah. say going on a 400 meters and 800 meters or 1500 meters there's an entirely different, you know, those that sprint off and realise by the second rep they're done. And pacing, and, and, and just, again, that that running being in your head about how to, your perceived effort is something that you start to learn from a child and you start to learn it and learn it. And I say it, it, it doesn't have to, it's not necessarily, yet, I think, the level at which you compete, it's just no. your experience base. Yep. Yep. And, and yep. We've, we've got so many people that we work with and... They they're not they're not elite, but they are the most experienced people, and they know exactly how to pace things, what to do, and it's it's you've just got to look at how many of the like you said before with elite runners who can go out too fast because their their margins of error because they're going to chase down fast, you know, course records and things like that. Everyone's susceptible of getting it wrong, regardless of their level. But I think your experience does come down to some guys who are, you know, men, women who are running 15 to 20 hours a week. Uh, they, they, they do know what they're talking about and they've, they've got that pacing down, I think, uh, as well. I guess there was something you touched on there with the elite versus middle back of the packs and that. that one thing also that it, it almost seems redundant, but sometimes it is worth then saying because it doesn't get said because it seems so redundant. But that is, if you're trying to absolutely squeeze every second of, out of your potential, there's a lot less margin for error than if you're, you know, less concerned with time and you have a bit more of a buffer. It's a lot easier to pace yourself, quote unquote, Which well, is, yeah, if you have absolutely. this huge margin yeah. of what it means to run well. That if you're like, if you're sort of going in and thinking, okay, I, 
I'm fine in you know this two hour range. Whereas if you're oh, going in and thinking, record, I have different. this, you know, I think I'm cap- just capable maybe of this time. You know, there's like this ten minute window of what I think is the absolute limit of my potential, and I'm shooting for that. You now it's going to be so much harder to yeah pace yeah. that quote unquote well. So yeah, I think pacing wise, the first thing is to, is to practice it in your training. Come race day, though, you know, even the most experienced athletes, as both of you guys said there, can go out too fast and not think it's too fast at the time. Um, and look, you know, the ways to pace an ultra, first of all, for most people, the advice I give is whatever pace you think is right, slow down a fraction more, and that's probably where you need to be. Um, I mean, for those of you with power, we can usually give you a target within 10 watts or so of where you should be. Uh, if you've got enough data, enough good race data. For those of you without power, you know, you've just got to really develop your sense of RPE um, because heart rate and um, speed, GPS speed, are not useful at all. Um, so for most people, and when I say most people, let's, we're talking about middle of the pack runners for 100K. For most people, if you're going faster than your long run pace, then you're probably going too fast. The pace you can hold for your easy four hour, five hour long run is usually the upper limit of what you can hold for 10, 15 hours in a race. Um, so there's your starting point. And for I guess one 100 thing, miles, it's even slower. Yeah, Sorry, one ben. thing I often say to people there, if you are just sort of going off that perception, and that is in that first 10K, ask yourself, do I think realistically think I could be running at this pace in the last 10K? And you can be optimistic in that. Like, don't, <laughs> don't assume it's going to be a death march to the end, but... Even being optimistic, you know, you sort of usually have a good sense of like, oh, is there any way I'm going to be running this quickly? Or, you know, if you're asking yourself, should I be walking up this hill or running up? It's like, well, do you think in the last 10K you'd be walking or running up? And the answer is, and yeah, and if even being optimistic, you sort of go, no, this is this is faster than I could do in the last 10K, then slow down. Yeah, definitely. Um, given that most people go too fast at the start, it's pretty safe to say that if you go a fraction slower, you're probably going to be all right the other question i could ask is can you go too slow at the start of an ultra and of course you can but typically what i see is that the pace that feels too slow feels too unnatural to you like it's it just doesn't feel comfortable it feels like you're running in a different way and if you're feeling like that then you're probably running too slow but if you feel comfortable in that too slow pace uh, but it feels fine in terms of you know the rhythm and the cadence and just your general running form feels fine, then it's probably not too slow. And although you'll find lots of people passing in the initial stages, you'll probably find that towards the end, you're going to be passing a lot of people, particularly for a miler. I mean, now UTMB, when I took off that, for those of you who don't know, UTMB starts off with a fairly flat, I think it's about 7K to the first climb, 7 or 8K, and it's just undulating fire trail road. Yeah, it's just, it's just really cruisy. And, geez, the pace some people were taking off at was just ridiculous. Um, I was cruising along at you know just over 5-minute Ks, which I thought was probably, oh, maybe this is too quick. But because so many people were just flying past me, I thought, oh, okay, it's probably not too quick then. Um, but, yeah, even there, it, it's just crazy the pace some people started. And you've just got to swallow that ego and go, this pace needs to feel easy. I need to be... At the pace where I'm questioning whether it's too slow or not, and I think if that is how you feel, you're probably spot on, particularly for a miler. For a 100k, it probably needs to feel the same, definitely not quicker than your long run pace. 
uh, depending on where you are, whether you're closer to 10, 12 hours or more to 15, 20 hours, will depend on whether it should feel same or slightly quicker in the long run or same or slightly slower in the long run. Um, but that takes practice too, you know, you just got to go out too fast in one race and blow up and realise that, okay, that pace, although it felt pretty comfortable to start with, was was way too fast. Um, the other thing people kind of don't connect the dots with is that they attribute their slowing down to cramp or stomach problems. It's like, oh, if I didn't get cramp or if I didn't get stomach problems, I could have kept that pace up. It's like, well, one of the reasons you probably got cramp or stomach problems is because you pushed your heart at the start rather than it being completely independent. It's probably quite closely related to the fact that because you pushed too hard, that's why you got cramp. Because you pushed too hard, that's why you have stomach issues. So rarely are those issues not connected with your initial pace. And I guess with that, yeah, that, that sometimes does catch people by surprise, but sort of just ask yourself, if you walk the whole way, would, do you think you would have had that problem? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, I often say it as well, do you cramp or get stomach problems in training? Never. And lots of people will say never, ever, ever. And it is, it's, yeah, it's effort level is uh, elevated. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, pacing, it's a bit of an art and it can take people a, a few races to kind of get down pat. But I think if you can practice it in your training, even in your shorter runs, um, those skills that you develop in your shorter runs will gradually help you in the longer runs as well. And you may need a few longer races to kind of fine tune um, how it feels. But I think that's where a good post-race analysis can come in. Like while, while it's still fresh in your head as to how it felt, kind of really think about how it did feel and how you tracked with other athletes, uh, what the data looked like if you've got good data, so you can kind of make some kind of uh, judgments and, and learning experiences from that race while it's still fresh in your head before kind of you know thinking about it six months later when you do your next race and it's all distorted by the, the process of time. It's sometimes um, that distance of, t- of being able to practice I think we've said in a previous podcast where it's not like a 10k or a 5k where two weeks later you just go and modify and do it yeah the six months or one year or whatever it is before you do an, a miler for example um it's sometimes frustrating and difficult to remember that feeling of excitement that it gets it sucks you in and and being patient to be able to learn from the mistakes that you've made in the past is sometimes uh, one of the the issues with running such long races i guess yeah all right. Anything else, guys? Anything else we haven't covered that you can think of? No, it's my list. <laughs> All righty. Excellent. Thank you very much again, guys, for your input. Hope everyone's got some good information about that. As always, feel free to ask us questions, send us recommendations for topics, and we'll look forward to hearing from you and speaking to you soon. Catch you later, boys. <laughs>